Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. Uh, As we get into the uh, Christmas season, uh, people are thinking about their their traditions, their every year things, the things that make it feel like the Christmas season for them. And uh, I don't know what those those things are for you. Uh, my family had a few when, when I was very little. Uh, and then as we got older, it all kind of fell apart. Uh, I know for many, many, many people, part of what makes it feel like Christmas is the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Right, okay, we got it. We got a few. So uh, we never owned the Charlie Brown Christmas special. I would usually catch uh, parts of it on some, one of the major networks would play it around Christmas time and I'd, I'd watch for a while and maybe make it through one commercial break, but by the time we got to the second one, I got distracted by something and, and off I went. Uh, however, the scene that I have seen the most from this movie I mean, is actually near the very, very end. It's the most iconic scene from this movie. And so if I am spoiling the end of it for you, A, you've had like 60 years, and B, uh, it's not really that kind of movie, like spoiling the end. Uh, So it turns out that Charlie Brown has trouble getting the things to happen the way he wants them to happen. I know, shocking, it's every Charlie Brown cartoon ever. Uh, But, uh, near the end of this, he's trying to get this Christmas pageant thing to go off, and, and everybody's got their own opinions on what needs to happen. Uh, and he eventually, backstage from this pageant rehearsal, kind of looks up at, at the ceiling and shouts, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And his friend Linus walks up to him, and, and Linus, for the uninitiated, is the one uh, who's always carrying his little security blanket around and has his thumb in his mouth, even though they're all supposed to be like eight, I think. I don't actually know how old they're supposed to be. They're like eight-year-old adults or something. It's very strange, but whatever. Uh, he, he's, he's carrying his blanket and, and sucking his thumb, and he walks up to Charlie Brown. He pops his thumb out of his mouth, and he says, sure, Charlie Brown, I know what Christmas is all about. And he walks out from behind stage and he walks out onto the stage and I've never figured out why this part happens, but he says, lights please, and the spotlight shines on him and I don't know why he needed the spotlight for this, but cueing you in, it's a very important part of the movie. And he begins to recite for this empty auditorium uh, and the people who are off in the wings, uh, these verses from Luke chapter two. So I'm gonna read them to us. Uh, He recites them in the King James Version. I'm going to read them in the New Living Translation because my, I I have enough trouble with with regular English, let alone the these and thou. So anyway, uh, he recites something like this, uh, starting in Luke chapter two, verse eight. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth 
to those with whom God is pleased. And for those of you who like Easter eggs in your Christmas movies, at the moment where Linus says, the angel told them, do not be afraid, Linus drops his little security blanket and completes the rest of his monologue. At the end, he then picks up his blanket and he walks back off stage to Charlie Brown and he says, Charlie Brown, that's what Christmas is all about. And Charlie Brown grabs his iconic Charlie Brown Christmas tree that is more twigs than it is tree. And he walks outside and after a moment's pause, the rest of them sort of walk outside after him. And he walks out into the snow and he stares up uh, at the stars that are twinkling. And he thinks about what Linus says and says something like, Linus is right. I'm not going to let commercialism ruin my Christmas. At which point, ABC always cut to commercial, which I found really <laughs> quite ironic. But that's, that's the message of the show. I'm not going to let commercialism uh, ruin, ruin my, my Christmas. That savior that Linus monologued about, uh, of course, was named Jesus. And he would grow up to be uh, a man who taught and who healed and who changed the world. He was asked, Jesus was, one time by a Hebrew scholar. We would think of him today as an Old Testament expert. He said, okay, smart teacher guy, Jesus, you seem to know a lot. What would you say is the most important commandment in the Hebrew scriptures? And Jesus said there are two. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, to love God with all we are and to love others with all we have. And God commands us then to go all in, all heart, all our soul, all our strength, to love him and to love the people around us. And this is not a one-sided ask by God. It's not just something he commands. It does not return in fact, the Christmas story demonstrates God's commitment to love you and me and the whole world with everything that he is and everything he has. God stepped into humanity to love the world with his whole heart and soul and strength. And so this Christmas season, we want to talk about loving God and people with our whole heart, with all of our soul with all of our strength and talk about how the Christmas story sets an example for us in doing that. And so this morning, we're going to talk about loving God and others with all of our heart. So to do that, I want to pick up where Linus left off. I'm going to rewind a little bit and start at verse 13. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. 
But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. Now, when I read that verse, my brain immediately thinks of this as kind of two separate things and and two separate internal organs involved here, right? She kept things in her heart and she thought about them often, which I think it was as a brain thing. But that wouldn't be the way that ancient Greeks or ancient Hebrews thought about it. Uh, Luke is written in Greek and the word there is cardia, like cardiac, right? And cardiac, cardia has two different definitions. Uh, one would be your actual heart in you. The other would be the sort of seat or center of all physical and spiritual life. And as, uh, I guess, a side note, uh, uh, Strong's Concordance says, and I will quote them because I did not go through and count, uh, Strong's Concordance says that cardia shows up over 800 times in scripture and never once does it mean the actual physical heart. It always means that a metaphor of being the center of all of our physical and spiritual life. And this makes sense, really. Like, they knew that, uh, that the heart beat, that there was a pulse. They, they knew this was part of keeping you alive because when that stopped happening, you stopped happening, right? So they know that much. They know that um, when you're stressed out and you're, you're thinking a lot of things, your heart beats faster. They, they know that when you're in a situation of strong feelings, of, of passion or of fear, that, uh, that your heart beats faster. And so it made sense then that all of those things emanated from your heart. Uh, ancient Hebrew had a very similar idea. They, in fact, didn't have a word for mind in the way that we think about mind. They knew there was an organ in our heads, but they didn't have a, a word for mind. Like the Greeks, heart for the ancient Hebrew, the, the culture that Mary and Jesus were born into, the, the culture that first said that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. They, they thought the same thing, that heart was the center of not only our emotions, because we use it today as sort of poetically refer to our, our emotions and feelings, right? Not just the center of our emotions, but also of our desires, of our thoughts, even of our memories. The heart was the center of, of all of that. And modern science will also tell us that yes, all of those things happen in one organ in our body. We just know it all comes from our brain, Right, that, that the heart beating faster is because of signals from our brain to our heart to say, hey, this is a situation where we need to be really awake. So like, wake up and, and let's go. We know that there's a limbic system in our brain that is the unconscious, unspoken desires and, and reactions that, that we just uh, will just react to a, a situation. We know that um, when we study the brain, as people are doing memory recall, different parts of our brain light up. 
And they may send signals to our body when we remember something, it often sort of manifests itself in some sort of physical reaction, depending on how strong that memory is. You can maybe think of something and all of a sudden you're smelling something or you feel your body tightens up or relaxes, depending on the memory. We know that when we get stressed, we can maybe feel it in our chest right? or in our body, in our arms. We get tightened up and, and it makes sense that that would... Uh, would lead us to believe that that's happening in our heart, but our heart actually only feels, as much as we talk about it as being a feeling thing, an emotional thing, our heart really only feels what the brain tells it to feel, and last night's tacos with too much Tabasco sauce. Like, that's all, that was a heartburn joke, and it's not actually about the heart, that's also, anyway, I'll let some other scientists explain that. But uh, we, we don't feel in, or think or process in the same way with our hearts that the ancients thought we did. It all comes from our brain. So, so yes, one organ, just we have a different concept. But we're going to talk about hearts, not like the modern poetic version of this is where your emotions are. But we're going to talk about heart as it was used by those who wrote it down. And their concept was this is the center of everything. So for our conversation this morning, heart equals inner life, okay? It just means everything inner. So our spiritual life, our memories, our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, our dreams, all of it encompassed in loving God with all of our heart. So we read that Mary kept all of these things in her heart. Other translations say treasure or cherished, and those are more flowery words, more beautiful words, maybe, more poetic. Kept is probably a really good word to, to stick with, that she just, she simply held on to them. She held on to these things for a while. Mary holds on to her memories and holds on to the story as it's sort of unfolding in front of her. And I want to talk about keeping things in our heart, because if what we're talking about is keeping things in the center of our inner life, in the center of our emotions and desires and thoughts and memories, then what we keep, what we hold on to really, really matters. So one of the things I hope we walk away with today is the need to pay attention to what we keep in our hearts. Pay attention to what you keep in your heart, what you keep will affect your desires, your thoughts, your memories. What that means is that what you keep in your heart will affect your relationships, will affect your work, will affect your worship even and how you relate to God. And I don't think it's too far to say that what you keep becomes what you give. What you keep in your heart becomes what you give, what pours out of you, what's produced from your heart. What you keep will be in the, the ways that you love and worship and care for other people. And it's kind of like this, and I, I, I hope this analogy works, and if it doesn't work for you, stretch it a little and give me some grace. <laughs> we'll, we'll try to all be on the same page. It's kind of like God has given us an internal treasure chest, 
And he said, in this treasure chest, I want you to keep all the things that are most important to you. Your memories that you want to hold on to. Memories maybe of your parents or of your kids. Maybe even memories of times when you got hurt and how those hurts were met. I want you to hold on to and put in this treasure chest your dreams, those longings that feel so fragile, you're not sure you want to actually tell anybody about them because they might poke at them and they might break. I want you to stick those in here. I want you to put in this treasure chest your values, your deepest desires, the, the dreams of who you want to be, who you want to become. I want you to put all of that in this treasure chest, but be careful because what you put in here will be what you give back to me. What you put in this treasure chest will be what you give back to me and to others in love and in worship. In other words, in order to love or in order to worship, we open up our treasure chest of a heart and, and we pour out what's in there. The contents of our heart spill out in our love and our worship, whether we want them to or not, whether they're good or not, which means that many of us spend a lot of time trying to love or worship by opening that treasure chest just a little bit. Like I'll just, okay, I'll, I'll open my heart just a little bit to this person or just a little bit to God. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is because we're afraid if we open it all the way up, which would be, by the way, really unhealthy to do with all people. But there are some people that we would want to love so thoroughly and completely that we need to open our treasure chest of a heart all the way up. To love God all the way, to love God with all of our heart would be to open this treasure chest up all the way and so many of us try to open it just a little bit because either we're afraid that if we open it all up, that's going to expose the fragile things in us to other people or to God and those things might break. Or because we know that there's things in there that we're not particularly proud of. And there's some darkness that we've kept in there. And we don't want to open that up, so we, we just open our heart a little bit and hope that only the good things pour out and the things we're not very proud of will be trapped and left behind. Maybe God won't have to see those parts. Maybe other people won't have to see those things. And, and we can just love in a very controlled, halfway, kind of open kind of way. This is going to feel like a detour, but I hope it makes sense. You know, there are is a lot of conversation in our culture right now and in our society about the things that are destroying our society from the inside out. And I know not everybody is talking about this, but I know lots of loud voices are. And it seems like all of these loud people have a different opinion of what's destroying our society from the inside out. Maybe it's, it's all of those liberals. Maybe it's these conservatives over here. Maybe it's the things we're doing in schools. Maybe it's these rules over it. Whatever it is, talking about all these things 
destroying us from the inside out. I have a theory. So my theory on what's actually destroying us is bitterness. That the bitterness that we are storing up, that we're choosing to keep, is destroying each of us from the inside out and thereby destroying our families and our community because we're holding on to bitterness about what these people over here are doing, what the liberals are doing or the conservatives are doing, whoever it is that we don't agree with. We're bitter about who's being blamed and who's not taking ownership. We're bitter about rules that we're supposed to follow or those who aren't following them. We're bitter about the people who left or the people who stayed. We're bitter about what the church across town or across the country is doing or saying. We're bitter about what he said or she said, what he did or didn't do or she did or didn't do. And that bitterness stems from, flows from an unwillingness or an inability to forgive. Because when we hold on to unforgiveness, when we decide to keep that, we think we're either keeping score or we're keeping a placeholder for justice. That somehow if I hold on to this thing, justice will happen in this situation the way that I want it to. But all that we're really keeping is bitterness. When we refuse to forgive someone, or when we forgive too shallowly and quickly, when we say, okay, I know I'm supposed to forgive, so I forgive you. No, no, it's fine, don't worry about it. And we haven't actually touched or processed the hurt that we have still kept then, because we haven't actually forgiven the person. When we either refuse to forgive or we forgive too quickly, that unforgiveness that hurt we haven't touched or dealt with continues to sit in our treasure chest of a heart. And as it does, it will mold and rot and turn into bitterness that poisons everything else we have chosen to keep. And suddenly when we go to love or to worship and we open up our treasure chest, the things that flow out of it are tinged with bitterness. And it's likely that you know or have known someone who we would just say, man, they're a bitter person. Like they're just bitter. Now, often that's because they have gone through some really, really hard things in their life. We would say that life has not been kind to them. And yet there are other people that you likely know who life has not been kind to them either. And yet they don't walk around bitter. We, we might even say they walk around with some joy in them. So what's the primary difference? The primary difference is whether they have held on to unforgiveness and whether that unforgiveness that they have kept has rotted into bitterness and it's so infected the other things that they have chosen to keep, their memories, their emotions, their thoughts, that when they go to interact with other people or interact with God, it comes out with bitterness at the core of their treasure chest of a heart. Bitterness becomes the key characteristic of their hearts, of who they are, of how they engage. And now the bitterness is spilling out of them and it is not only destroying them from the inside out, but their families and their community as well. And you and I are most definitely not immune. 
We even get uh, bitter at God, right? God, why did you let this happen? God, why am I going through this? God, why didn't you stop them? Why didn't you stop her? Why didn't you heal her? Why didn't you heal him? God, where are you? Where have you been? And to say that we need to forgive God feels ridiculous. And so we just don't. We just don't touch the hurt and process it. We go, well, God must have a plan for it. It must be fine. I'll just pretend it didn't hurt. And as we let that hurt sit in us, whether we should be hurt or not, is not actually what I'm talking about. If we've chosen to keep hurt, if that's our response to the situation, which may be a very real and legitimate response, eventually that hurt that we're unwilling to touch and unwilling to deal with becomes unforgiveness and that unforgiveness rots into bitterness and we become bitter at God and the way that we worship and the way that we love becomes at the very least tinged with bitterness and if we leave it there long enough, it becomes the core of our treasure chest. And again, you and I are not immune to this. I know I open up the treasure chest of my heart and I see bitterness lurking in the corners. Scores that maybe I, I want to keep. Something that I want to hold on to so that maybe justice can happen the way I want it to later. And frankly, most of the time when I scoop up those things tinged with bitterness and I actually hold them and deal with them, they're absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> they're the silliest little things. But somehow what I've chosen to keep is the anger or frustration or judgment or score that eventually could easily turn into bitterness, that could easily tinge the way that I love and the way that I worship. Even stuff that's decades old that I thought I dealt with, that I go, oh, that was really lurking down in the corners there of this treasure chest. And I may have to pull up stuff that's three decades old to go, God, I'm actually still really frustrated with you about this thing. You and I, we need to examine our hearts to open up that treasure chest and take a look. And I know that that is really scary for a lot of us. There are many of us who would rather deal with a giant garbage dump in a third world country than deal with the garbage in our own hearts. But we have to. We have to actually open it up and deal with it and go, where is unforgiveness hanging out? Where is bitterness starting to form? We have to flush out that bitterness because if we don't, that bitterness will destroy our lives, our families, our community from the inside out. And if bitterness infects our hearts, our entire inner life, it will not just affect our ability to love, right? We, we talked about hearts being not just emotions, feelings, interactions, relationships, but also thoughts, desires, and memories. And memory is a really interesting one to me, and I don't know if it will be interesting to you, but hopefully interesting enough for the next three minutes of this. Uh, and if you find that it is really interesting, I guess first I should say uh, that researchers uh, have found that our memories 
are not nearly as accurate, accurate as we, we think they are. We are a lot more confident in our memories than the statistics bear out. And if you do find this interesting, I'll recommend uh, a podcast for those of you who listen to podcasts. Uh, this episode is a podcast, or is an episode of the Revisionist History, Revisionist History Podcast, easy for me to say, by Malcolm Gladwell, the Revisionist History Podcast. And this episode from two or three years ago um, is called Free Brian Williams. So if you're interested in some of this memory stuff, he dives way deeper into it. One of the studies he talks about in that podcast uh, is uh, a study after 9-11, so 9-11 by researchers is considered what, what they call a flashbulb event. And if you think about those old cameras that when the flash went off, you didn't have to be looking at it, just everybody in the room knows, knew that a flashbulb had gone off. So 9-11 is one of those kind of events. Um, Challenger explosion, JFK assassination, 9-11, right? Where even if you didn't watch it, you know where you were when you heard about it. You were instantly or very quickly aware of it. And researchers then do lots of studies around people's reactions and responses to these flashbulb events because you have a whole country of people to study. Uh, and so some researchers in New York, right after 9-11, decided that they wanted to do a memory study uh, based on this 9-11 flashbulb event. And so uh, about a month or two after 9-11, they had a whole bunch of people write down everything they could remember about that Tuesday morning in September, where they were, what they felt, who they talked to, where they went, all those, just anything you can remember about that morning. And then a year later, they had them come in and do it again, just write down everything you can remember. And then they just sent them on their way, said thanks for coming back. And they had them come back another year later. So now we're two years out from the actual 9-11 event. And they had them write down everything from that morning. What, what do you remember seeing, smelling, hearing? Who did you talk to? Where did you go? What were you thinking, feeling? All of that, all that stuff, okay? They write it all down. And this time, they pulled out what they had written down a month after 9-11 and compared it to the thing two years later. And the memories only matched at about 40% on average, 40%. So about 60% of their memory was inconsistent two years later. Even more fascinating to me is the confidence people had in their memory. So what they would do is they would show them the thing from a month after and people would read it and go, well, that's not how it happened. And they say, well, do you agree that this is your handwriting? So, well, yes, I agree that this is my handwriting, but if I really wrote this, I don't know why I lied to you then, because this is how it happened. Now, if you think about it, how confident are you in your memories? <laughs> now, I will say that some other studies, smaller but more recent, have found numbers up to like 70 or 90%. So if the 40% number, which is generally accepted from multiple studies through the years, but if that 40% number scares you, just go with the 90% study. Be like, yeah, I like that one. Let's go with that. 40% of their memory. A more recent study was about more short-term memory. So uh, three or four years ago, 
some researchers got a whole bunch of people together in a pub and they had them watch a fight on TV, like not a fight in the pub, but like UFC, boxing, something like that. Um, and they all watched it together in, in a big group in the pub. And then they had the people who were there who'd watched the fight one at a time go tell the story of that fight. Just retell what happened in the fight. That's all you have to do. Just retell what you just watched. Now, for half the people that were in the pub, they said, hey, just so you know, the person you're talking to really likes this fighter. They're a big fan of him. And then for the other half of the group, they didn't tell them anything. There's no bias involved at all. And sure enough, perhaps unsurprisingly, they found that the half who went and told somebody that they had been uh, told really liked one fighter slanted their retelling of the fight a little bit, not lying, just maybe leave a thing out here, just slanted it just a little bit so that that fighter looked, sounded better in this retelling of the fight. So the person they're talking to who really likes that fighter would feel better about their fighter. And, and the people who didn't have that bias told a more straightforward account of the story. What's more interesting to me is that they had everybody come back the next day and they had them tell a researcher the story. Now, these researchers had all been in the pub watching the fight with them. So all they're asking them to do is, hey, 24 hours later, would you just tell us what happened in the fight? We all watched it together. Just retell the story for us of what happened. And they found that that half who had been given the bias, who told a slightly slanted story immediately after, a day later, two researchers who had no bias told the same slightly slanted story. The story we tell changes the way we remember an event or situation. Now that's kind of scary. What it means is that we need to be very mindful of the story we tell. Be mindful of the story you tell. The story you tell becomes the memories you keep. Now I don't know how the shepherds told this story of a Messiah being born. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they ran around town telling a very accurate story. It, it had just occurred and was, I'm sure, really impressed on their brains because they likely never had an angel show up in the middle of the night before. So they, this feels like a big deal. They're running around telling everybody. People are astonished. And as we read the story, it doesn't seem like they'd have to make anything up for people to be astonished, right? You heard that story in the middle of the night and be like, Oh, that's, yeah, that's quite a story. I am astonished. It's interesting that Luke essentially contrasts Mary's reaction with the people's astonishment. He writes that the people were astonished, but Mary simply kept all of these things in her heart. Mary seems to try to limit the amount that emotion changed and charged the memories she kept. She just held on to it. And as modern readers of this story, we know, or can know, if you don't know, please feel free to keep reading. We know how this baby's life goes. 
We know the incredible highs and incredible lows that Jesus's life will undergo and that Mary as his mother is going to have to go through as he goes through them. But Mary doesn't know any of that. I think a lot of us are really tempted to try to not just tell the story of what has happened, but try to tell the story of where we know it's going. To go, oh, well, if this group of people keeps saying and doing the things they're doing, then this is how it's gonna end up. And there is some intelligence. I'm not telling us to never do that. There is some intelligence to going, you know, I think this set of behaviors and actions and words is gonna lead us to this place. But be careful how you tell that story. Is it inevitable? Are you telling a story that can't be changed, that you're just convinced is gonna happen? What does that do to the way that you are going to approach the days and months and years to come? What does that do about how you approach today? Mary does not seem to panic. Mary does not seem to be overwhelmed by the situation. Mary chooses to keep the things that are going on around her. And the story so far for Mary has been quite the mixed bag of good uh, and bad. It's mostly been weird uh, and and hard. We know from Matthew's gospel that uh, her fiance, Joseph, was just going to break the engagement quietly, which is stated in in Matthew as this, wow, look at uh, this incredible thing that Joseph is doing because he could have done much, much worse to her, lots of public shame or, or other horrible consequences. Uh, and, and he chooses not to. But from that story and from what we know of the culture at the time, it, it seems likely to conclude that Mary was probably seen as some sort of outcast or pariah by, uh, by her society, by her town, probably by her family. Like in, in a a society where you're not supposed to be having sex before marriage and, and ending up pregnant. Like no dad is going to believe, well, the angel told me, right? Like that's not, nobody believes that story. Mary then has this incredible journey from uh, her hometown of Nazareth to Bethlehem at nine months pregnant. The whether she walked or rode could not have been fun. And yet, the story that we read in Luke doesn't contain any of those things. Modern scholars think that Mary was likely a source for Luke, Luke's primary source for the first couple of chapters. And that makes a lot of sense. The stories in the first two chapters of Luke are really from Mary's perspective or her cousin Elizabeth's perspective. So if he didn't talk to the two of them, he talked to somebody who knew both of them uh, very, very well and, and knew the story that these ladies told. Mary could have told a story about how hard it was, about what her family did to her, about how hard the journey was, and she can't believe those awful Romans would make her go take a census and she'd have to travel across town. She could have told a story about an innkeeper who rejected them, but instead the story is about an innkeeper who was full, but he let them stay in the shed out back with the animals so they had some place for the baby to be born. It seems that the story she told 
and the things that she kept were the good things. And I don't know if Mary was super optimistic or just really intentional about what she kept or, or both. But she holds on to the good things and the things she keeps becomes the story she tells, becomes the story Luke tells, and becomes the story Linus tells. And I think there's a lesson here that we can learn from Mary about our own hearts. And that's to choose our response intentionally. Choose your response intentionally. Choose what you keep, what story you tell, what desires are stirred up within you. And, and I know this can be really hard because we don't always choose how we react in the moment. And so I'm not really talking about that instant reaction of your heart beating faster, of the things you want to say right away or do. So it's not that immediate reaction, it's how do you respond based on that reaction, based on what happened. And choosing to respond intentionally, not just let our immediate reaction drive us. I'm, I'm not just talking about that immediate reaction, I'm talking about what you choose to keep. Talk about how you choose to love, about what you store in your treasure chest. Talking about choosing to fully forgive, not, not just hold on to it in some hope that keeping score is going to make it better later, not just wiping it away because, well, I know I'm supposed to forgive, so I'll just say I do but to actually open up the treasure chest and touch the heart, the, the hurt that, that you've been holding on to and say, okay, I actually need to process. I actually need to give grace. Many of us will find that as we open up the treasure chest and we see the hurt in there, we see the darkness, that there's things that we've done that we're holding on to going, I can't forgive myself for that. Whether it is yourself or somebody else, we need to actually touch the hurt and fully forgive or that unforgiveness will sit there and rot and turn into bitterness that will impact and infect our lives, our families, and our communities. We need to fully forgive. We need to accept forgiveness. We need to choose to love despite the hurt. And we need to tell a really good and really accurate story. The story you tell becomes the story you keep. And what you keep becomes how you love. And so if you and I choose correctly, if we choose intentionally, if we pay attention to what we keep in our treasure chest of a heart, if we extend grace and accept grace, then we will be willing and able to open that treasure chest up all the way and to love God with all of our heart, just as he has loved us. Again, I know that is not easy. 
And so as we seek to do that together, and as the worship team comes up to lead us, let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your example of love to us. Thank you for your commitment to love us no matter what it costs you. Jesus, thank you for demonstrating a love that gives up everything that you would love us with, with literally your blood and sweat, that you would love us with your whole heart, that you would love us with all of who you are. And we want to love you in return in the same way. Spirit, would you stir up in us the confidence to examine our own hearts, the courage to actually look and touch and feel and to extend forgiveness and grace and to know that you are extending grace to us. Spirit, would you stir up in us the ability to love with our whole heart? God, would we have confidence in your goodness to know that as we open ourselves up to you, that you are safe to open up to, that your grace is good and true for each of us, um, and that we can give you, offer up to you, love you with our whole heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.